This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. It is December 22nd as we approach the end of the calendar year. Uh, compared to the calendar year of our Jewish brothers. It's not the calendar that's best, but it's the calendar we deserve, the Roman calendar. We approach the end, and for our final segment, we're going to uh, use that Roman calendar to give us occasion to look back over the year and see who has changed the world the most uh, in in these past 12 months. But first, we're going to go through our four regions, and we start this week with Andrew Miller, who watches Anglo-America. Andrew, can you give us, first of all, just a rundown of the top stories that we need to be aware of this week? Yeah, there's usual, there's a bunch of big and concerning stories in the Anglo-American region. The Department of Agriculture is reporting that foreign nationals have purchased an astounding 3.4 million acres of U.S. forest and farmland. Uh, the economist Harry Dent is predicting that 2024 is going to be the biggest single-year economic crash in our lifetimes. And the Missouri School District is offering coloring books for six-year-olds, asking them to choose their pronouns and draw the corresponding hair and clothing style. I'll forgo comment on that last one, but uh, Harry Dent predicting that there's going to be a crash in 2024 reminds me of the recent uh, trumpet video that... uh, Managing editor Joel Hilliker posted recently. It's there at Trumpet.com Twitter account, and uh, it was the uh, Bank of England economist, a very prominent Bank of England economist, who's predicting the the same type of thing. So, I think we're going to need to buckle our seatbelts for 2024. And your main topic's about 2024. Yeah, the main topic about 2024 as well. Uh, probably on uh, any other week, I would have talked about that economic news today. Uh, But it so happens that this week, an unprecedented thing in American history happened, which is almost hard to underestimate how huge this is. And the Supreme Court of a U.S. state, the state of Colorado, banned the Republican frontrunner from running for office in a case that went all the way up to the Colorado State Supreme Court called Anderson and Griswold. They ruled that under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is ineligible for office in Colorado because he engaged in insurrection on January 6, 2021, after swearing an oath as president to support the U.S. Constitution. And I'm reading directly from the court hearing right there. So enormously important case because if they're right— and the front runner of the Republican Party is an insurrectionist, that's gigantic news. But if they're wrong and the Democratic Party and their allies in the media are basically trying to go through the list of people running for president, um, ban who they don't like, and present the American people with a curated list of pre-approved candidates like Ayatollah Khamenei does in Iran, then America is no longer a democratic republic. Right. This is huge news. This is just, in quotes, a state Supreme Court, as you said. But, uh, and I was asking you for more information on this, 
um, and you just clarified there that they are applying the United States Constitution. This is not, you know, them applying some sort of Colorado law to get him off the ballot. They are saying that by the circumstances of this case being whatever they are, the United States Constitution uh, is what they're applying to take him off the ballot. I think they've issued a stay where it, it won't actually go into effect if it's appealed, something to that effect. Uh, but they've taken a shot over the bow of saying we, you know, you're just seconds away in, in a sense legally from being removed from even the possibility of being voted into office. Right, because Colorado is the first state to do this, but they're not the only state trying to do this. They're actually only they're one of sixteen states where there's a case like this going to through the court system. There's actually a pretty good chance that um, California may follow suit soon. Not that Donald Trump had a huge chance of winning California in the first place, but there's like sixteen states, and so almost assuredly the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to get involved in this which I think why they issued the stay because they knew the Supreme Court's going to get involved in this. Because to break this down and actually figure like which of those two apocalyptic scenarios I presented earlier, either the Republican Party is led by an insurrectionist or the political media complex is presenting us with Iranian-style curated list of candidates, you do have to understand what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says. Uh, it was – 14th Amendment was enacted right after the Civil War – it was at a time in American history where we were worried about Confederate generals running for high office and getting a case where you could have someone who was, until just recently, trying to destroy the concept of the United States, uh, running the United States. And so they added uh, Section 3, which is called the Disqualification Clause, basically saying that anyone who's been involved in insurrection against the U.S. government is ineligible to hold office in the U.S. government unless two-thirds of Congress decides otherwise. If you actually go through this uh, court proceeding like I have, the rationale of the Colorado court case rests on three things. One, you have to prove that January 6th was indeed an insurrection. Two, you have to prove that Donald Trump was leading that insurrection and it's not just something some random people did. And then three, it's like, well, if Donald Trump led an insurrection, does the disqualification clause apply to him? Uh, and from my understanding of the law, I actually think three, and that's probably the part they focus on here the most, is true. If Donald Trump did lead a violent insurrection against the U.S. government, then he is disqualified from holding office. The part they gloss over in the legalese and the reason the Supreme Court will probably overturn this is they did not adequately established that January 6th was an insurrection or that Donald Trump was leading it. As we've pointed out, um, or, or as our uh, executive editor, Mr. Stephen Flurry, and his uh, father, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jared Flurry, have pointed out numerous times, Donald Trump, really his only chance of staying in office was to get senators to debate the evidence of election fraud. Every time a senator protests against a, a certification of election, they have to debate for two hours. There are 100 senators who wanted to do that. So that's 200 hours of debate. Very little of that debate ever happened because Congress went into recess when things started getting rowdy during the January 6th protest. And so that pretty much that, – those protests pretty much assured that Biden was going to be certified in the election because most of those 100 congressmen lost their nerves, never certified the election. What the Colorado Supreme Court is claiming 
is that Trump deliberately stirred up those riots to force Congress into recess so they couldn't certify the election. They're like, they go, he doesn't want them to certify the election. So he's actually using mob violence to prompt Congress to flee the building. Congress did go into recess, but that's not what's happening. He's like, he was, what was happening in the congressional chamber is what Trump was most concerned with, the debate. And the riot shut that down. Uh, so th there's no, there is good legal evidence that a president involved in insurrection should be banned from holding public office. But there's no evidence that Trump led that insurrection. Or even if you look at some of the video footage that it was an insurrection. Because when I looked at it, it just looked like a guy in a buffalo hat just like wandering through quiet corridors. Yeah, escorted by police. The The thing that's really interesting about this is, is many of these things that we've said uh, are not new. But the fact that the Supreme Court is getting involved is new. I mean, you remember November and December 2020 and how many court cases and how many you know potential Supreme Court cases there were, the one involving Texas probably being the main one. And just time after time, uh, the courts you know threw it out, refused to hear it, Supreme Court included. And now we have the possibility of the Supreme Court getting involved, which uh, as you kind of alluded to, Mr. Flurry has specifically talked about this court. Probably the article we'll put in the show notes, or two articles in the show notes. One's the trumpet brief from this week from Mr. Stephen Flurry titled The Supremes Finally Get Involved, even though that's mostly about another court case involving January 6th that Donald Trump's involved in. There's not just one. But then also the the bigger trend article from um, Mr. Joe Flurry being Is America's Supreme Court in Bible Prophecy uh, that goes through Amos 7, which talks about two institutions in end-time America that support an end-time type of Jeroboam, who Mr. Flores identified as Donald Trump, the King's Chapel and the King's Court. The King's Chapel is obviously um, it's a religious movement that supports Jeroboam. So, but the court uh, is not a religious movement. Actually, if you look at the word, it would be better translated Kingdom's Court. And so it's not necessarily personally loyal to Jeroboam. It's loyal to the kingdom, but it does still favor him. There's a conservative advantage on there that does favor him, uh, as it says in that article. And so based on that king's chapel and the king's court, it's like Trump is coming back to power, uh, but we're expecting them to come back to power with the support of an evangelical electorate and a Supreme Court that favors him. And so in this case, it's like definitely if he's going to have to come back to power, uh, the Supreme Court is going to at least, at the very least, have to get involved in overturning these court cases that are saying that he's not even allowed to run and maybe do more than that if they're once they start getting their dipping their toe into the January 6th case to figure out like well what, what evidence of election fraud were they so desperate to cover up that you're now claiming that Trump stirred up violence so that they couldn't look into it right so that's is America's Supreme Court in Bible prophecy and uh, this week's update on Supremes finally get involved. And if and when the court becomes just the absolute ground zero battleground for the presidency, remember where you heard it first. And you heard it first years ago if you've been a, a longtime listener to Trumpet Hour and to the Trumpet Daily. We move on to the next region, which is the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic has crossed the pond and is here with us in the studio here in central Oklahoma. Mihailo, good to have you with us. Let's have the update from the Middle East. Yes, so an update on the ground invasion of Gaza. The Israeli Defense Forces are continuing to consolidate their 
advance into Han Yunus, that uh, big city in southern Gaza that has been making the headlines lately. Bit of interesting news from some of the uh, reports coming in from the Hamas members captured by the IDF and interrogated by the IDF and by Shin Beit, the Domestic Intelligence Agency of Israel. The director of Kamal Adwan Hospital in the city of Jablia, his name is uh, Ahmad Kalot, and he confessed to Shin Beit that uh, Hamas took over this hospital as a military operations center uh, and that he himself held the equivalent rank of a brigadier general. He specifically said the 16 staff members of the hospitals, including doctors, nurses, paramedics, uh, they were involved as Hamas members. The hospital had offices for Hamas to do their work in. They had their own personal ambulances to use for anything that uh, any operations, uh, no pun intended, that they needed to execute without being too conspicuous. So there's a lot of debate on the news these days about, well, why is Israel targeting hospitals? Are they sure it's where Hamas is controlling? You have the, the leader of one of these hospitals admitting so to the point. I mean, which country has brigadier generals running their hospitals? I mean, come on. The next story, we go all the way to the other side of the Middle East. Iraq just held their first local elections or for provincial council elections, technically, as they're called, since, for the first time since 2013, 10 years ago. This is may not sound like too big of a deal, but these are how Iraq's provinces, states, semi-autonomous regions, whatever you want to call them, will basically be governed, including who eventually chooses their executive heads. And the Shia coordination framework, which is a sort of conglomeration of Iran-backed political parties have won, from what we can tell, the most seats so far of the elections as far as the results coming in as of yet. You don't have to think about that long ago when it was the United States calling the shots. Again, no pun intended uh, with what happens in Iraq. But we see now it's Iran and Iran's sponsors, Iran's proxies that are controlling government. Uh, We're hopefully in the next print edition going to have a an article about how Iran controls a lot of Iraq's military. It wasn't that long ago when Iraq itself was a powerhouse in the Middle East. It was the country everybody was afraid of. And now it's, for all intents and purposes, an Iranian puppet. These elections demonstrate that further. Your main story is something that's affecting a lot of people, getting a lot of people's attention. Um, And again, most people don't really think about this too often, even though um, everything in the room you were in <laughs> probably in some way got there because of shipping. And your main story is on shipping. Yes, it's perhaps maybe even a misnomer to put this in the Middle East section because, it, as you said, it concerns the whole world. We talked about the uh, Houthi uh, or Houthi terror group in Yemen and the escalation they're having attacking Israel, attacking ships going to Israeli ports in the Red Sea. For long-time listeners of the program, they might remember the time when I started giving updates on Saudi Arabia week after week. Looks like Yemen's becoming the new Saudi Arabia because there was another escalation in the Red Sea. The world's six largest shipping companies announced they would halt shipments through the Red Sea in response to the Houthis and the targeting they're doing on commercial vessels, on non-Israeli commercial vessels. This obviously accounts for a majority of the world's shippers. The world's largest shipping container company, Swiss Italian Mediterranean Shipping Co., is included. The second largest, Denmark's Muller Maersk. Some other uh, 
big names here, an associate of Costco, which we talked about before, not the American food service company, but the China, the Chinese shipping company. The German company, Hapag Lloyd, said they'd investigate whether or not to freeze use of the Red Sea. And they just came out yesterday saying they would do that. Even just yesterday, you have a, a seventh major shipping company join the list, Hong Kong's OOCL. This is not a small deal. The Red Sea might seem far away from so many people. This is basically the Red Sea and the Suez Canal is the world's way of cutting across Africa and going from the markets in Asia, shipping things in Asia directly into the Mediterranean, directly into Europe, and by extension, saving time going to North America as well. That doesn't mean you're not going to get your goods arriving in your stores anytime soon. Most of these companies are going to be circumventing the old-fashioned way across South Africa and uh, the Cape of Good Hope, which would add weeks of uh, time, however, to their travels, add serious expenses in terms of fuel, in terms of being able to keep people supplied uh, with food on the ships for that number of time. And again, this is not just one this does not affect just one niche uh, commodity going through. This affects everything. This affects oil. This affects, uh, which of course affects so many other things as well. This affects food. This affects clothing, uh, raw materials. With how much our economies have been struggling with inflation and some other ills, this is going to compound that in a massive way. And these are huge companies we're talking about. We're not familiar with them because they're not, you know, consumer brands, so to speak. But the the one you mentioned, Mediterranean Shipping Company, is as big as Microsoft, right? So these are huge companies. And even though you don't see it, everybody relies on them and relies on this circulatory system of shipping to really live daily life the way you normally live daily life. And uh, to threaten shipping like this is pretty bold for this Iranian-backed group and is an indication of graver threats. Indeed. And you can be sure the rest of the world is taking uh, what's going on in the Red Sea pretty seriously. Uh, As you mentioned, the Houthis are backed by Iran. They're one of the better armed terror proxies of Iran. You you look at some of their videos and they look like Russians marching through Red Square with their technology they have and their precision. The United States at this point is spearheading the international community's response to this. From the beginning, we said that this is an international challenge. It requires collective and international action. And we've been able to bring together now a number of partners, including the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, Spain, and even more to address this challenge together. Also today, in a related fashion, the United States and the world's largest flag states for commercial vessels transiting the Red Sea also issued a joint statement condemning in the strongest terms the threats and the acts by the Houthis. This joint statement has 44 signatories, including NATO, the entire EU, and G7. That was United States National Security Council spokesman John Kirby talking about the new international coalition that uh, the United States is putting together to monitor the Red Sea. And as you hear it, it is an international coalition. You have some countries nearby the area taking part. You have some countries all the way on the other side of the world. But you have especially a huge European presence, including, like as you just heard, countries like France, Italy, Spain. Some of the companies we mentioned, they're based in countries like Germany and Denmark. Europe is taking this pretty seriously. And we expect Europe to take the what's going on in the Red Sea, what's going on with Iran's meddling of world trade even more seriously. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, 
that speaks of two end time blocks, a king of the south and a king of the north. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, has pointed for decades to the king of the north being a united European block and the king of the south being radical Islam led by Iran. The rest of the verse shows that Iran is going to control a proxy empire in places like North Africa and, and the rest of the Middle East. Mr. Fleury, specifically through some of those countries mentioned, shows that Iran's goal is to get control of the Red Sea, get control of that shipping route. And as verse 40 brings out, that's going to be something that Iran's going to push at Europe. And Europe's going to take notice and Europe's going to respond pretty heavily. And with what we're seeing with the Houthis right now, with what we're seeing with Europe getting more interested in protecting world trade, that is bringing the fulfillment of this prophecy in, over in a major way. If our listeners would like to learn more, Mr. Fleury wrote an article way back in 2015 for our April print edition of that year. It's called Iran Gets a Stranglehold on the Middle East. Iran gets a stranglehold on the Middle East. The Houthis were in the news back then, but not many people were talking about them disrupting world trade or prodding at Europe. Almost 10 years later, that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Mr. Fleury goes into those prophecies and helps give the big picture on what to expect. And he's been doing that since the 1990s, the uh, early, mid-1990s. You mentioned the Iraqi elections. I mean, back in the 90s, uh, Iraq was a much greater power, as you said there. They'd just come out of a massive war with Iran, which was like this new thing where these radicals had just taken control in 1979, goes immediate, almost immediately into a major war with Iraq. Somewhere in there, I don't have the date on it, but Mr. Flory wrote, is Iraq about to fall to Iran? 1994. And 1994. And so this has been a longstanding forecast by Mr. Flurry. And you have to remember what it was like at the time the forecast was first made. It, you know, now it seems pretty logical, seems to make a lot of sense. But, you know, even the Houthi aspect of it seems to make a lot of sense. And you remember right across the water, I don't know what it is, like 30 miles or something across the water from the Houthis, there's uh, Djibouti and it's got, I think, like six military bases or, or six major powers using four military bases, something like that, just right across the water that, you know, everyone knows how important this is. It's not just like the world doesn't, isn't paying attention to that critical choke point. And yet they haven't been able to fully eradicate the problem, not because the Houthis are so strong, even though they're pretty technologically advanced for a terrorist group compared to Hamas or something, but because it's backed by Iran. And if you want to take on the Houthis, you got to be willing to take on Iran. And and the forecast that Mr. Fleury gave even back in the 90s tells you who will do that and how, and you alluded to that there. But I'll let the listener read, Iran gets a stranglehold on the Middle East. And just keep checking the trumpet.com because just about every single day you're going to get an update there in the in-brief section or in the in-depth section about this situation. We move on to other situations in other parts of the world, specifically Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, you are uh, well-versed on Asia and have been for some years now. You're going to give us just a few quick updates and then a trend, I think, that if we do a show on, on trends of the year, I think that I would probably nominate that one. But first, give us those quick updates. Sure, yeah. First, a quick story here about an earthquake in northwest China. This was on Tuesday, and it killed at least 135 people, injured nearly 1,000 more. It displaced 87,000 people. So this is China's deadliest earthquake in almost a decade. And uh, it struck a very poor and remote part of the country. 
So the search for survivors has been really arduous. And to make it much worse, there's a serious cold snap underway in northwest China right now. It's been as low as negative four degrees Fahrenheit most nights. So you've got tens of thousands whose homes have been destroyed, a thousand injured, and it's terribly icy all through here. So trucks are struggling to get up the icy roads, and it's just a very tough situation. And then a quick update on Russia's war. Russia has still failed to take the Ukrainian city of Avdivka, but it continued this week to push hard there, wave after wave of what you could really only call meat assaults, just pushing huge numbers of soldiers into positions that have very little cover up against Ukraine's very well-fortified positions here. And it looks like Russia is losing some 1,000 personnel per day at present, which is just a stunning figure. But that doesn't mean things aren't looking up for Russia in general. The U.S. package for Ukraine is still stalled in Congress. The EU failed to pass a major package right around the same time. That was thanks to Putin's crony, Viktor Orban, who vetoed the move. This does seem to have really reinvigorated the Russians, and it has added new motivation, I think, to their push, especially around the northeastern Ukrainian city of Kupyansk. That's a strategically important city that Russia conquered early last year, and then they were devastated to lose it in Ukraine's first big counteroffensive in September of 2022. So, Russia is now working very hard to recapture that city. It's a rail hub, so it would give a considerable boost to Russian logistics. And there's even chatter right now about a massive new push by Russia far deeper into Ukrainian territory. So just a rumor at the moment, but with Western nations apparently abandoning Ukraine and with Ukraine's ammo and artillery terribly depleted, and with Putin just about to be quote-unquote re-elected for another term, all of that means this would be a great time for Russia to attempt something very ambitious. And always in the back of your mind is Russia is the world's largest nuclear power. You know, I don't know if it'll come to that, but certainly that even gives you an advantage. Even the threat of using tactical nuclear weapons is always hanging over the head of the Ukrainians. Give us that larger trend that in some ways has defined much of this year and last year. Sure, yeah. I think the big story is that Russia and China are increasingly working together to dismantle the American-led order. So we saw this clearly a few days ago with another big air patrol that the Russian Air Force conducted with the Chinese Air Force. They flew some nuclear-capable strategic bombers partly into South Korea's air defense identification zone, and they flew very near to Japanese territory as well, near enough to prompt the Japanese to scramble some jets. And it seems like that was really the point of all this. You know, South Korea and Japan are American allies. The U.S. has tens of thousands of troops in both of those countries. So this was Russia and China just kind of rattling the cage against America and its partners. This week, there was also a U.S. intelligence assessment that was declassified. And it showed that Russia and China, in tandem, dispatched their armies of Internet trolls back in 2022 to try to influence America's congressional elections. So these are hundreds of thousands of Russians and Chinese people whose full-time job is to post articles and to write comments and to like certain posts and to argue. You know, you see them all over news sites. You see them even more so on social media platforms like Facebook, Reddit, Telegram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. The Russians and Chinese often claim to be Americans. 
and they work around the clock just fomenting hatred and distrust, doing everything they can to deepen political division. They lionize candidates who are more you know, sympathetic to Russian designs on Ukraine. And of course, they also demonize candidates who are in favor of supporting Ukraine or Taiwan. And the evidence shows that these armies of Russians and Chinese have remained active in the months since then. So if you feel like the internet has gotten more insane lately, <laughs> and if you feel like a lot of your fellow Americans adore Russia and see Putin and Xi Jinping as men who should be appeased, these web brigades are a significant part of why that's happening. And then another interesting area where we see this Russia-China cooperation is in some recent attacks against Finland. Finland just joined NATO, of course, and Russia is especially furious about that. So Russia decided to weaponize illegal immigration against Finland. We've mentioned this briefly on Trumpet Hour before, but the Russians basically just pushed large numbers of migrants from North Africa and the Middle East across their border into Finland. It was mainly an effort to overwhelm Finland's immigration system and to deepen Finland's political divisions. But what's fascinating is that right around the same time, a Chinese ship dropped anchor in the Gulf of Finland and dragged that anchor dozens of miles, rupturing a gas pipeline and a major telecommunications cable in Finnish waters. Authorities say that it could take six months to repair that damaged pipeline. And of course, it's a terrible time for that with winter now upon us. And it does look like the Russians and Chinese planned these unusual attacks and coordinated them largely because that prepares them to wage far greater coordinated attacks in the future. This is practice for the Russians and the Chinese. They've never really functionally cooperated uh, before. They've certainly never coordinated their actions. But in doing two things in different theaters versus the same country that has managed to displease the Russians of late by joining NATO, uh, this is practice for kind of a larger scale. That was geostrategist Peter Zion there, and, uh, and he makes a compelling point about how this all appears to be just a dress rehearsal in a sense. You know, it's Russia and China memorizing their lines, choreographing their steps, just rehearsing for major coordinated operations against their enemies, and it's setting the stage for some very dramatic theatrics going forward. If I may interject on the point you made earlier about the army of Russian and Chinese trolls influencing social media... I think it's a good opportunity to show, and it's a good case study on how much, we talk about fifth generation warfare often today, about governments intentionally manipulating media to push a narrative to get more control of those people. I think it's a common misconception that the, the kind of warfare between countries is over, and this new warfare is between governments and people. It's still between countries, and as people, you're a representative of countries, it's not just the deep state that wants to control your mind. Russia and China want to control you, the average American or Canadian or Brit or wherever you are in the world. They want to control your mind, too. So just because we had our recent print edition come out with an article on the post-truth world, that article does a good job of describing it's not just the powers that be, the Klaus Schwab's and George Soros's that are trying to get control of your mind. You're a target for people all over the world. And when you see information and contradicting, say, what some of these deep state figures say, that doesn't mean they don't have an agenda themselves. It doesn't mean you're not their prey as well. So as we keep going into a more and more divided a society with lots of problems in the media, that's something to keep in mind, too, as you analyze the news, as you filter what comes on from different places. Absolutely. Stay vigilant. It's so easy to get your news from social media. It's so easy. People recognize that and they want that power. 
Yeah, great point. And if the Russians have shown themselves to, you know, kind of underwhelm a bit with their soldiers' performance on the battlefield, they have more than made up for it with the hybrid war, the information war. They've done a stunning job with the propaganda there. But I think that this trend is really significant because the Bible prophesied that Russia and China would forge an alliance in the modern era. You can see that in Revelation 16, which talks about the kings of the east coming together. And uh, there are some details revealed about it also in Ezekiel 38, showing that Russia will be the head king in that alliance, the king-king, maybe you could say. And uh, China will be Russia's main partner. And so the scriptures show that this group of Asian kings will soon attack the global order in far more disruptive ways than what we're now seeing. So with all of these ways that Russia and China are working together now, it shows that these prophecies are already in the early stages of fulfillment. And if our listeners would like to learn more and you haven't already read this booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy, just request that booklet. You'll see how these major trends, again, were, were mentioned, were forecast years ago when Russia and China were not anything like an alliance that has changed, but Russia and China in Prophecy has not. Our next region is Europe. Mr. Palmer, you mentioned to me off the air that it's been a huge week in Europe. Tell me all about it. Yes, it's been a really hard one to choose the big one. But one of the massive pieces of news that we've seen this week is the first permanent German military deployment abroad. So you know, we've seen Germany deploy its military abroad before that taboo was kind of broken with Yugoslavia and with Afghanistan and Germany setting up major troops abroad. But now we're seeing them do it in Lithuania. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. One, it's permanent. So this is Germany creating permanent military bases beyond its borders. That's something, that's a taboo since World War II that we have never seen broken until now. All the other ones, yeah, they may have lasted quite a long time, but in theory, they were temporary. And also, this is solo. This is this is pretty huge, too. The, the German military was designed so that Germany could not project power abroad by itself. You know, initially, it was designed so that it could not project power abroad full stop. Well, initially it was no military. Then it was, okay, you could have a military, but only a military that could protect you against an invasion from the Soviet Union. That's how it was until decades. Once the Soviet Union fell, then it's like, okay, well, we'll allow Germany to develop a military where they can help in overseas operations. They can come to Afghanistan and they can work alongside the United States. But there are critical components of that that they're missing that they're not able to provide themselves. So they're reliant on other powers. So they can't go around invading people by themselves. This is a German mission. This is the complete package, the full package. They're going to Lithuania. And Peter Zihan, we just heard a clip from him, from Jeremiah Hitter, just an excellent video on this overseas deployment. He said, the advantage of having Germany without a functional military, I cannot underline enough why that is important. And he talks about, okay, this is 5,000 troops. This is a tank and an artillery brigade going to Lithuania. This is not a conquer the world type of force. It, you know, it's 5,000. But he says it does mean the rehabilitation of Germany as a more normal country that has military tactics and strategies as part of the toolkit, just like any other country. And because of that, Germany will start having opinions on security issues. So it's a major milestone in Germany becoming a normal country. I think the other thing that's really interesting to think about is why did this happen? This happened on Monday. Last Friday, we were talking about Germany's takeover of the Polish government. For Germany to have a permanent military deployment in Lithuania, it needs the cooperation of Poland. So I think there's there, you know, what happened in Poland fits in with a broader agenda. 
And it's as soon as they get that compliant government in Poland, boom, they're off to Lithuania. That, I think, is something also important to take into account. And that's actually why I ended up choosing developments in Poland for my main story that I think are also pretty significant that we'll, we'll get to in just a minute. A couple of other just other important stories. There was a massive shooting in Prague. Yesterday, 14 people died, 25 wounded. This looks like a, a school shooting. Sadly, almost like your normal school shooting in terms of these becoming regular, at least in the United States. It's by far the biggest that Prague uh, has ever seen. So it doesn't look like a terrorist attack, but still a, an absolute tragedy. You also had a couple of big deals come through in Europe. And again, I think this is directly related to Poland and what we talked about last time, because Europe has been struggling to come up with a deal on its budget. Poland's less involved there, but then certainly on illegal immigration, you get the compliant government in Poland and these immediately move through. So this European agreement on immigration it is a toughening of European immigration law. Uh, and so it is them developing a more hardline stance. They've been very strongly criticized by Amnesty International. Not something that normally happens for Europe. They're kind of right in line with the Amnesty International agenda. So this is more on Europe's personality change. But also it is more federalism, which is why Poland would have opposed it. It's more Europe acting as one country. And then right alongside with Germany becoming a more normal country, you had the alternative for Deutschland. This almost neo-Nazi party won a city's mayoral election for the first time ever on Sunday. So hand in hand with this militarizing trend, you'll see the rise of this very worrying political party. Well, I went through your draft on Poland and Germany's involvement there, and it was absolutely packed. And some of the things you just mentioned, I think, were either either just covered just briefly or not at all in there. I hope we can pack some more into that because Poland has become such a major factor. And it's just been dramatic what's been happening there. You said that you're going to cover that for your main story. That's right. Two key developments. But I'd like to set it up with a bit of this prophetic relevance. Here's, I think, a key quote from America Under Attack. We've heard about this book, I think, already. And it talks about how when you look at how oh, events in the United States have been targeted, you know, that book talks about how there's some key parallels between how America has been targeted how before then, how God's church was targeted, and then after that, how you're going to have the rise of a pretty evil power in Europe. And he said that it begins with someone who got people in at the top who cast truth to the ground. And he said, this is a core characteristic. This is a core characteristic of how this system, how this spirit works. It gets people in at the top, and they immediately start casting truth to the ground. And you get this truth and lies that Simon was talking about earlier. And I think we saw that on display in Europe far more than any time I've seen it when I've been watching Europe. The first of this was the European Commission began going after Elon Musk and Twitter for not censoring enough. So the EU Internal Markets Commissioner Thierry Breton, he announced that they're launching their first investigation under the new Digital Services Act, which punish, threatens massive fines for so-called misinformation. We also, the week before last, we had the European Digital Media Observatory, this EU body, publish its annual report on disinformation within the European Union. These are some of the things that it lists as disinformation. Uh, reports of LGBTQ+, their words, not mine, indoctrination in schools, criticism of electric vehicles, discussion about the, quote, limited usefulness and inconvenience of climate measures, descriptions of migrants as violent or a drain on taxpayers' money, uh, or accusations that the government cared about migrants more than their own people. So these are things that the European Union's says are disinformation, are things that are provably, demonstrably 
false and lies. I mean, half of those are opinions anyway. They're not like even a five year old can understand that's not a fact. This climate change measure is inconvenient. That's an opinion. That's not that's fundamentally not disinformation. So this makes clear that when the EU says, Twitter, you're not doing enough to police disinformation, you know, they want total control and they want you to not be allowed to say anything that they disagree with. And that is right in line with the same spirit that is talked about in America under attack. That book just points to the way that you've got this spirit in the United States and you're going to see the same this movement with so many similarities rise up in Europe. And that's what we've seen this week. And then this other story comes from the Polish state TV news. One of the first things that this new government put in place, basically at the behest of Germany, did was to shut down Poland state TV news in an illegal way. And this is, it. Look, it's like a coup. The scenes from Poland have been like what happens when the, the, a military junta takes power and decides they're going to take control of the broadcasting agencies. It would be like somebody coming to power in the UK illegally and then deciding they're going to shut down BBC or shut down BBC News illegally. It's almost unthinkable for here. So Poland's constitution, very similar to the US's. I think most Americans would understand that. For something to become a law, it has to be approved by Congress. It has to be approved by the Senate. President has to sign. What the Polish prime minister did is he came in and he got their equivalent of Congress to pass their opinion on something. It's a recommendation. It's not a law. It's not gone through all of those things. And their opinion, their recommendation was that Poland state TV should be put under new management. He then took that and treated it as if it were a law and as if it had gone through that full constitutional process. And fundamentally, I think you, you, you'd see this in the United States. If it's not gone through that constitutional process, it is not a law. But he treated it as if it was. So he sent police into the Polish state broadcaster. They got, you know, there was fights over, not with bullets, but there was kind of fights over trying to switch the broadcast off. Bits of TVP world, they're outward focusing one. Bits are shut down. Bits are still running as people kind of fight over this. The opposition staged a sit-in as they tried to oppose what is happening here. I mean, what I think is remarkable is, you know, I was, I think I was on Hit This Show last week and I was quoting an article from TVP World that I thought was just excellent and had some excellent quotes. That article is gone now. It's a week later and it's scrubbed from the internet. And what I thought was excellent about that article is it exposed Germany in a unique way and the role that Germany plays in censorship and disinformation. It was published, I think, December 13th, you know, maybe a week and a half ago. And that entire organization, TVP World, has been obliterated from the internet and they're trying to shut it down. The Bible talks about what we're seeing rising in Europe, what we see already at the top of America. It's the spirit of Antiochus. You can read more about that in America Under Attack. That's what it looks like. That's a powerful example of it, where they just want to control what you say and think. You know, it's will worship what we say. That is what goes. And then just casting truth to the ground, coming in there and shutting things off. And I think you know, there are some legitimate criticisms of TVP. There are people that have said that the Polish language version of TPP is very much pro one political party. They took control of it entirely and it was just pro them propaganda. Maybe that's true. I'm not an expert on the Polish language. I, I've read the English language one. I haven't read Polish language TVP. I'm not going to defend them. But I think everybody has to be concerned by the illegal methods that it was just brutally yanked off the air. So, yeah, this is the attack vector, isn't it? Get control at the top and 
cast truth to the ground. That's a biblical phrase, but is there a better phrase for what we're seeing? This concept that we are the ones who, through superior force, will define information, misinformation, disinformation. We will control the words that are said. Therefore, we will control the information that is known. Therefore, we will control what you think. Like you said, we have seen this over and over again. And it's amazing how, well, America Under Attacks specifically shows that pattern, that vector, that method of attack. And it's so successful. And people have to be wondering, like, what has happened to the world? What has happened to America? But what has happened to the West? If you're wondering what has happened I, you've, and you haven't read America Under Attack, there's a, there are bold claims in there, but no one else is explaining the, the coordination of this attack, the repetitive use of, the, of similar tactics or the same tactic, the same strategy of getting control at the top and casting truth to the ground. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on KPCG. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back. Trumpet Hour, KPCG, the voice of the trumpet.com. I'm Philip Nice, and I'm here with our panel of trumpet writers. We have Richard Palmer there in England, Andrew Miller, and Jeremiah Jacques, and Mihailo Zekic are all here in the studio. And we have a special edition of the Roundtable this week. Other news organizations have their person of the year or thing of the year or clever whatever of the year. For the next few minutes, we'll give you our thoughts on 2023 and the man of the year. Andrew Miller, your nomination for man of the year. Make your case in about three minutes. Well, we've already heard about truth being cast to the ground in Europe. Uh, We've heard in previous programs about truth being cast to the ground in the United States. This idea of just global censorship and control of information is one of the biggest trends of the year. So my nomination for man of the year is Elon Musk. And if we can harken back all the way to the beginning of the year, from December of last year to March of this year, so the first quarter of this year, uh, Musk was routinely dumping batches of internal emails from Twitter, basically proving that all these big Silicon Valley internet companies that are um, biased towards the left aren't just biased, but they're actually working for the State Department, the FBI, transatlantic think tanks, in some cases, like even taking direct orders from the EU to allow these governments to control this information. And the fact that this was exposed was really just miraculous. I mean, Musk is an impressive guy. He's got an IQ of 155. He's got $258 billion in the bank. Richest man in the world. May put a rocket on Mars in the next four years. If that happens, he'll almost assuredly be the world's first trillionaire. And yet has decided to take $44 billion of his own money to operate a company that he's not really making any money off of just because he sees how important free speech is to any democratic society. Free speech, absolutely a crucial and endangered freedom. Jeremiah Jacques, your man of the year. You know, I thought about nominating someone who most Westerners don't think about much these days, partly because he's been dead for 1,400 years, and that is the so-called prophet Muhammad. 
And I think that a compelling case could be made for him in 2023, just because even though he's been in the ground for a long time, he left a religion behind that has severely disrupted the world this year. Many of those who follow his religion have had their minds just putrefied by their beliefs. They think that the most demonic acts of rape and murder are not only justified, but they are God's will. October 7th, of course, showed us that, but also the stunning support by many followers of Islam around the world for the terrorists. So, you know, a lot of people think in this utterly twisted way and in some notable ways that can all be traced back to this man who was born in Saudi Arabia more than 1400 years ago. So his name could maybe be thrown into the uh, turban as it were. But for my main nomination, Russia and Asia are the regions that I mostly watch. And from that side of the planet, the person who I would call the most significant, and this may come as a shock to many listeners since I never talk about him, but I nominate Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, the president of Russia. Just kidding, of course, about not talking about him much. He is almost constantly in the news cycle. And of course, he has redrawn the map in several different places with his various conquests. But even if we look just at this year, You know, we started 2023 off with Ukraine just brimming with confidence that they would kick the Russians out. The Russians were devastated by the losses that they had endured. And then as 2023 went on, there were rumors of body doubles that Putin was using because he was just too sick, too afraid of people to appear in public. There was also a big mutiny against Putin back in June. One of his former confidants rose up against him. The Russian economy appeared to be on very shaky ground. Um, So things were not looking good for Putin, especially for the first probably nine months of 2023. And it was hard at times to see how he would pull through. But Putin is a survivor, and he withstood all of those slings and arrows. He blunted Ukraine's counteroffensive. He's gotten rid of those men who mutinied against him. He's just been nominated for another term as president of Russia. And as we approach the end of the year, he really seems invigorated. He's suddenly giving marathon press conferences with plenty of energy. He also has a huge part of the world seeing things his way. That partly thanks to the propaganda campaigns that we spoke about earlier. So I think it just shows the staying power of Putin. It shows his ability to thread the needle and bide his time. And it shows that those who have hastily written his epitaph were way off. He's wildly influential. So I think he's a good candidate. And I would just stress that our phrase man of the year does not mean he's a good man. (laughs) You know, Putin is a special kind of calculating and wicked, but he's influential. And that's what the title means for us in this segment. Correct. How much has this individual changed the world in the past 12 months? Mr. Palmer, your man of the year nomination. I went through quite a few different people. I thought, well, what are the big trends of the year? Who's behind them? Obviously, the Gaza attack, massive. So I thought, well, maybe uh, Yaha Sinwa, this Hamas leader that, that had planned it all, or maybe Ayatollah Khomeini. Also, you know, economic news, inflation, this is something that has been massive. But really, behind all of these different news stories, and even behind some of what we see happening in Europe and Ukraine, is one man, one man that we had on the cover of one of our trumpet print magazines this year, sitting in his sweatpants, running everything from behind the scenes, and that is Barack Obama, the former president and current power behind the throne. That article, the cover article for that trumpet edition was Barack Obama's third term and fourth. 
And it's, it says that the nation-destroying problems afflicting America are not the mistakes of a senile president. They're the successes of a malevolent shadow puppet and shadow president. And so many of the things that are going on around the world trace back to the shadow president. You know, who is it that has been enabling the rise of Iran that has then enabled Hamas in Gaza? Well, that's, that's something we had in our trumpet print a couple of issues back that behind that attack is Iran, behind Iran is Mr. Obama. Who is there destroying the American economy? It's, it's policies that he's pushed. And then the weakening of Americans' foreign policy role is just driving so much of what is happening in Europe. You know, why are Germans behind setting up overseas military bases? Because they no longer believe the United States is willing or capable of defending them. After, you know, why did Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine? Ultimately, because he saw things like American weakness in withdrawing from Afghanistan. So I would say that behind what is happening, it, it's that one individual, just like Jeremiah. That doesn't mean I'm nomin- you know, we're not saying the best man of the year in this man of the year. And even that article in that trumpet print edition, Barack Obama's third term and fourth, will uh, help show you even the scriptural underpinnings of why the Bible highlights this man as being somebody who is just so influential in the world. Right. And I would have no idea about that except for the consistent articles and messages by Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. And you see kind of a culmination of that in the October 2023 edition. Go to thetrumpet.com, scroll all the way down. You can look at it right now. Mihailo Zekic, your man of the year. Yes. Well, my man of the year relates to the Middle East, but it might not seem that way immediately. I actually nominate German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, simply because we obviously in the trumpet have covered Germany for decades. Our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, have, has covered Germany for decades, putting a special focus on this country with so many Bible prophecies. And in the future, we expect Germany to shake the world probably more than any other country. For the longest time, even back when I was covering Europe more regularly, get a sample of some speech that Angela Merkel made or some German politician no one else has ever heard of make a tiny policy change, and that'll be our main story about Germany. Under Chancellor Schultz, we're not even finished his first term as chancellor. We've seen so many prophecies related to Germany start getting in the process of being fulfilled. So many things we've been watching for for so long and not see that much progress, and now they're going at lightning speed. Regarding the Middle East, our editor-in-chief, the latest trumpet issue, show its cover story is about Germany befriending Israel, becoming Israel's best friend, Israel wanting Germany to help them above any other country in the world. That's unprecedented. He also talks about Germany intimidating Hezbollah, most likely, to not invade Israel, sending a message to Iran, and Iran backed off. That's unprecedented. And it's not just the Middle East. It's We just heard about in Europe, of the Polish... TV station. Again, there's so much we don't know what's going on there, but I honestly could not see someone like Angela Merkel pulling the strings to get that done. But Olaf Scholz is. We've talked on this program before. Well, well I think it's getting done because Olaf Scholz is an empty chair. Well, that's fair. But at the same time, when you put together all these other things, you put together Ukraine and the kind of treatment that Germany has been selling Ukraine to Russia. Again, maybe somebody else could have done it, but they didn't, at least not the same way that he is doing it. I remember when the German last German election was coming out, we were all focusing on Armin Laschet, the conservative candidate, because how he's from Aachen, the Holy Roman Empire capital city. He looked like a more promising figure. We didn't talk that much, comparatively speaking, about Olaf Scholz. But as it turns out, he has brought Bible prophecy forward in a massive way, certainly much more than I was expecting. 
and he probably will do so, or at least his government in the short term, even more than we're expecting now. Right. His government being probably the key there, and not to mention the industrialists and people un- under the hood yeah, there that, in Germany. You know, this is moving forward. And I think you make a good point about all the things that Germany has done. And it's happened through Schultz. Schultz has been the one to resist aid to Ukraine. Schultz has been the one to offer German boots on the ground in the Middle East (laughs) in reality and a promise of even putting them on Israeli soil if necessary. So I don't think you mean to say that he's on the the level of an Obama, a Putin, some of these figures that have been mentioned by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry as having a specific prophetic role. But there's no denying that Germany, which happens to be under his leadership right now, is ending the year totally different than it started the year. I think Mr. Palmer, you know, phrased it as a normal country. And when Germany does not have, you know, these restrictions where it needs to rely on another nation for its air transport, for its military, or needs to rely on another nation for its gold reserves, or, you know, or the, all these things that were put in place to keep it restricted. If it becomes a normal country, it's not going to be a normal country. It's going to dominate the entire continent through peace first this time. And then like it has done throughout history, it's going to go to war. So so to watch Germany and to watch Scholz and whoever you know ends up replacing him in the future and to watch a strongman rising over Europe as a whole is something you've absolutely got to do. That's all the time we've got for our man of the year. You're the one to adjudicate and make the decision which of these men is the most significant for 2023. We'll leave it there. We want you to uh, tell us who you think the man of the year is by emailing us at the trumpet or letters at the trumpet.com. We want to thank our panel. We want to thank our producers. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Trumpet Hour.